Um, and I, I will admit, though, that um, the thought of preaching on this particular Sunday grew increasingly nerve-wracking over the course of this week. Um, of course, when I agreed to, to be here on this Sunday, none of us could have yet imagined the violent gatherings of white supremacists that we witnessed this week. Though we have known that Donald Trump has incited violence over the course of his entire presidency, I don't know that any of us anticipated his deliberate call for insurgency. Surely what we witnessed this week did not come out of left field entirely. It was, of course, within the realm of possibility. Nonetheless, it was scary and heart-wrenching and infuriating to see. And so, as I was moving along in my preparation for today's sermon, I had to stop and rewind a little bit. I had to consider what these texts about beginnings, about spirit and or breath, had to say in light of the events of the week. The first reading is from Genesis. In this passage, we read not necessarily about the start of all time, but about the start of God's creation of the heavens and the earth. In this first reading, I am most struck by the image of the Spirit of God. And the, the word for spirit, um, as many of you may know, is um, the same as the word for breath. And so the image of the Spirit of God or the breath of God hovering, um, which in Hebrew, it says it can be like fluttering or moving, shaking or shimmying over the face of the waters. So the, the breath of God shimmying over the face of the waters. Um, among the spirit of God, we, we read that there was darkness, which also dwelled above the face of the deep. So at the beginning of God's creation process, there was breath and there was darkness and there was water. Our second reading is from the first chapter of Mark. It's worth noting, I think, that this comes at the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark. You know, we just moved through Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany, but none of that is included in the narrative that Mark opted to write about. For Mark, the good news of Jesus' story ultimately began with John the baptizer preparing the way and Jesus receiving the baptism of water or the baptism of repentance. Mark writes that all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were finding John, were being washed in the river Jordan, and were confessing their sins. This man they were coming to was dressed in camel's hair, and his meals were made of locusts and wild honey, and he admitted that what he was doing was simply preparing the way for one who was to come, who was more powerful than him, one who would immerse people not in water, but in holy, in the Holy Spirit, in holy breath. And that's Jesus' cue. But before Jesus is seen baptizing anyone with the Holy Spirit, he too, like many others, comes to the River Jordan to see John and to be baptized with water. The Spirit of God at the beginning of the creation of the heavens and the earth hovered above the waters. And now Jesus, the one who is to bring that Spirit to the earth, physically is immersed in the waters. And as he emerges, the sky rips open in the Spirit, that breath. We read it flies like a dove from the torn open sky to this man, Jesus. 
The spirit has been hovering all this time, and now with this baptism, it is here on earth in the muddy waters of the Jordan with Jesus and John and all those others who have come to be washed there to be converted. Let's think about this a little bit because Mark tells us that John's baptism is a baptism of repentance, the Greek word being metanoia, which more accurately means to turn away from. John is baptizing people who are willing to name their sins and then name and then confess that they have a desire to repent or to reverse their ways. So why on earth is Jesus receiving the same baptism? If Jesus was truly blameless and perfect, why would he see this baptism of repentance, this baptism of metanoia to be necessary? In, in a, her blog, Journey with Jesus, Debbie Thomas suggests that Jesus opted to be baptized as an act of solidarity. She writes, Jesus's first public act was an, act was an act of radical solidarity, an act of stepping into intimate, inextricable, shameful relationship with sinful humanity. Instead of holding himself apart, instead of protecting his own purity, Jesus stepped into the same water we stand in and wedded his reputation and his destiny to ours. Let's consider this as a possibility. Jesus, who perhaps could actually separate himself from those in the crowd who were known to be sinful, uh, he stepped into his humanity fully by aligning himself with them. From that position, Jesus began his ministry of peacefully undermining systems of injustice, of calling out systemic and individual sin, of engaging in kingdom building work. In this act of solidarity, the breath of God stopped dwelling above and began dwelling within and among. Though a voice is heard announcing Jesus's approval or approval of Jesus, his work was nowhere near done as we know. From his baptism, according to Mark, that same breath that affirmed Jesus as beloved, the beloved son of God, that same breath uh, sends Jesus, drove Jesus into the wilderness where he was challenged to demonstrate the conversion, the metanoia, the change that his baptism of repentance committed him to. Thomas again writes, in his baptism, Jesus entered into the full unwieldy messiness of the human family. In one watery act, he stepped into the whole story of God's work on earth and allowed that story to resonate, deepen, and find completion. In our baptisms, we vow to do the same. In the wild waters of our immersion, we join our beings to all beings and throw our lot in with theirs. This, uh, this idea this, um, that, that Thomas writes about is affirmed in the confession of faith in a Mennonite perspective um, that reads, we believe that the baptism of believers with water, it's a sign of cleansing from sin, but it's also a pledge before the church of, the coven of their covenant with God to walk in the way of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. So what might this mean for us, all of this? Particularly, what might this mean for us in this time and in this place, in the United States of America in the year 2021, 
just days after an organized white supremacist gathering in the nation's capital. I can't say for sure what this all means for us, um, but maybe. <laughs> maybe we found ourselves appalled at what we've seen in other white folks and in other so-called Christians this week. Maybe we can't fathom how people could get the gospel so twisted. Maybe we feel an impulse to separate ourselves from those Christians, from those white people, or from those U.S. citizens. I know I felt that impulse. I have been appalled by the headlines and the photos, and I have been quick to other those people. And truthfully, I think it is right to be outraged. If that's where you've been, if that's where you are, I'm with you, and I believe we ought to bless that outrage. But I wonder if Jesus's baptism of repentance ought to challenge us to see ourselves where we really don't want to. Jesus could have justifiably looked at those gathered by the river and thought, I'm not like them, that's not necessary for me. But he didn't. Instead, embracing his humanity and owning up fully to the implications of it, he entered in. He placed himself among the sinners and committed to starting anew. Maybe this text can remind us that by being whelmed by the waters of baptism and by the breath of God, we are called to enter into, we are called to enter fully into what is ours. I suspect many of us can't or don't want to see ourselves in the crowd of white evangelicals that gathered at the Capitol this week. But I'm afraid the reality is that the same white supremacist ideologies that fueled those riots are at work in all of us too, both individually and collectively, woke or not. If we are white, whether we can understand what we saw or not, we're still called to metanoia, to a turning away from an unlearning, a change of heart. As I've been reflecting on this, Professor James Cohn's words have reemerged for me. In his book, A Black Theology of Liberation, Cohn writes that knowing God means being on the side of the oppressed, becoming one with them, and participating in the goal of liberation. He declares, we must become black with God. Cohn recognizes that white folks will struggle with this concept. He states, the question, how can white persons become black, is analogous to the Philippian jailer's question to Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? The implication is that if we work hard enough at it, we can reach the goal. But Cohn says the misunderstanding here is the failure to see that blackness or salvation, the two are synonymous, is the work of God, not a human work. It is not something we accomplish, it is a gift. And that is why Paul and Silas said, believe in the Lord and you will be saved. Believing, Cohn explains, is to receive that gift and to utterly reorient one's existence on the basis of the gift. This sounds an awful lot like the concept of baptism and metanoia to me. I wonder if this week, at the beginning of this new calendar year, we are being called to renew the commitment made in our baptisms. 
before any kind of creation started, there was darkness and there was breath and there was water. Before the start of Jesus's ministry, there was water and there was breath. Before we can live into this metanoia to which we are beckoned, we must first be willing to enter into those same waters. As mostly white Christians gathered here, that may look like holding up a mirror and recognizing the ways that we are like them, like those who stormed the Capitol, like those who are terrified of what it would mean if this nation started treating black lives at as if they matter, like those who are blatantly blaspheming the name of God by using God to justify their violent actions and their violent ways of thinking. How are we like them? How are the systems and institutions we are a part of complicit? How has the Mennonite church been complicit? How is the violence of white supremacy at play in our lives, in our thoughts, in our theologies? What's our part in all of this? We cannot utterly reorient our existence if we don't first have the courage to confess how our existence has been oriented. I believe this is the work that we are called to. And like creation and like Jesus's ministry, like the kingdom building work, it's ongoing. It's the work of the spirit. It's not work that we are called to, nor work that we possibly could do alone. It is a call to each of us as individuals, but it is also the call of the church, the body of Christ. It's the work of solidarity, the work of listening attentively, the work of confessing, the work of reconciling, the work of peace. It's God's work. And I believe it is the work that started where our scriptures, scripture readings today began. And it is the work that Jesus, along with so many others, gave his life to. It's hard work. But we don't go, we don't go this alone. <laughs> There's too much and there are too many lives at stake to live passively into our baptismal vows any longer. The breath of God is still dancing, still hovering, still descending, still driving. My prayer is that we as the church might have the courage to be completely immersed in that Holy Spirit, that Holy Breath, and that it may dance in us as we recommit to acknowledging and dismantling the white supremacy that dwells within and around us. So may we go forth remembering always that knowing God means being on the side of the oppressed, becoming one with them and participating in the goal of liberation. Amen.